It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, April 10th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. After the California report, we've got national native news, where a federal trial on the disappearance of a missing elderly member of the Navajo Nation will soon begin. The case has garnered public attention but represents just one in the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous people. We've got your local news and spring weather forecast finally, before KVMR news intern Julia Jem speaks to Lauren Falkenberry, the Tahoe National Forest Service public affairs officer. The two discuss the final environmental impact statement and decision for the North Yuba Landscape Resilience Project. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. As the Monterey County community of Pajaro continues to recover from massive flooding last month, residents have been given the okay that water is once again safe to consume. This comes a little more than two weeks after water service was restored in the city. We've done extensive and comprehensive sampling. We've done everything that's been asked of us, everything that's required. That's Don Rosa, general manager of the Pajaro Sunny Mesa Community Services District. Along with samples that have shown no signs of bacteria, state and county officials have inspected facilities and cleaned and repaired any equipment that was damaged in the flooding. A FEMA disaster recovery center remains open in the neighboring community of Watsonville for any residents needing assistance. More fallout from the reappearance of Tulare Lake. Today, KVPR's Sarith Hawk takes us to Allensworth, the first black settlement in California, which stands in the path of the rising lake. Residents there are now fighting to keep the water away. In Tulare County, halfway between Fresno and Bakersfield in California's Central Valley, a creek runs through this once dry field of patchy grass. The land belongs to Kiara Rendon's family in the small rural community of Allensworth, the first black settlement in California. And right now, that community stands in the path of the rising Tulare Lake. All of that was full of water and it was coming into the inside the property. Rendon never thought flooding would be an issue. Tulare Lake was just a lake bed and the area was in exceptional drought for years. But relentless storms since late December have dropped record rain on the valley floor and some of the largest snowpack in state-recorded history. For the first time in decades, the lake has begun refilling, and more water is on the way as the snow melts. Because now we have all this water, but where is it going to go to? You know, we always say that man reclaimed the desert. No, we didn't reclaim the desert. We claim the desert. Nature now is reclaiming the land. That's Fresno writer Mark Arax, who for decades has given voice to the history and struggles that shape the San Joaquin Valley's rich agricultural landscape. The lake was a resource for Native American tribes. And it sustained these these Yokotachi tribes. They fished along the shores, they lived along the shores. Then settlers came and developed the land for farming. By the early 1900s, the lake bed went dry. Its water harnessed in an intricate system of canals, dams, and ditches. Arak says that makes the Tulare Lake Basin one of the most engineered landscapes in the world. The strange thing is is you're calling it a flood. I mean, it's the bottom of a lake, right? I mean, yes, the bottom of a lake should have water. But we've gotten so used to being emptied 
that this becomes now a, a fight of man versus nature. Lucrative crops like pistachios are now planted on thousands of acres of the lake bed, and flooding these crops will rack up huge losses. All of this raises the stakes for farmers, Eric says. So to see the lake come back is quite a drama. It is one of the, the great dramas of California. Emergency crews and farmers are doing their best to battle the rising water. There are reports of levees being cut to protect farmland. And CAL FIRE has been working with local officials to divert the water. A video shows helicopters dropping sandbags to try to shore up levees and canals. Right, we're doing an evac, another evac for a levee failure. Sean Norman heads an incident command team. So it's tricky because we have to really look at if we stop this water from moving here, where is it going next? Scientists say it's going to be difficult to avoid what happened in 1983 when farmland in the basin was flooded for years. Jeffrey Mount is with the Water Policy Center at the Public Policy Institute of California. He says the state doesn't have the infrastructure to handle the snowmelt. There's not going to be a lot of places to put water in the, in the near term. Mount says there are environmental benefits to the lake refilling. It, this is a, going to be a great year for wetland, wetland birds and insects and everything else. But for people like Kiara Rendon in Allensworth, this once-in-a-generation flood is a slow-moving disaster. What's going to happen here? Where are we going to go after? The water is coming, say experts. The focus should be on preparing for floods and the recovery. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk. A major milestone was recently reached for a rundown dam in Kern County. This comes as concerns grow over the potential for spring and summer flooding once California's massive snowpack melts. The Isabella Dam was once considered one of the most dangerous in the country. Now, with phase two of repairs complete, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says the dam is better prepared to protect communities downstream, like Bakersfield, from flooding. As part of repairs, the dam was raised and crews built a new emergency spillway, while also adding filters and drains to address concerns about earthquakes and seepage. The project cost over $300 million and took more than 10 years to complete. Tens of thousands of people rely on salmon fishing to make a living. That's why, ahead of a statewide closure of the salmon season, California representatives Jared Huffman and Nancy Pelosi rallied with California fishermen in support of a federal fishery disaster declaration that would bring much relief to this community. KQED's Kevin Stark has more. The season's closure could devastate coastal industries, from fishing to charter boats to restaurants. It comes as federal researchers say the Chinook salmon stock is at record lows. Huffman says drought conditions played a role in the crisis, as did water managers diverting flows away from rivers to farms. We're here to talk about the immediate needs of the fishing community. They're going to need our help, but we're also going to talk about the longer term need to save our salmon. California officials have submitted a request for a disaster declaration and economic relief with the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and Adult and Children's Health Systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives. StanfordMedicine.org. Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com CA. Guideline, the California way to 401k. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt 
whose philanthropy includes 11th Hour Racing, working to connect sustainability with sport to help restore ocean health. On the web at 11thHourRacing.org. And that's the California Report for Monday, April 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. A federal trial on the disappearance of a missing elderly member of the Navajo Nation will soon commence. The case has garnered public attention but represents just one in the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous people. More ahead in National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A New Mexico man pleaded not guilty Friday in the 2021 disappearance of Ella Mae Begay, an elderly woman on the Navajo Nation. Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports. At his arraignment in Flagstaff, 23-year-old Preston Henry Tolth pleaded not guilty to assault and carjacking charges. Begay's friends and family attended the hearing, urging that Tolth remain in custody. Seraphine Morin is Begay's niece. He's where he's at. His hands are shackled. He's, he's helpless, just maybe just like my aunt was. We're going to fight with this and him to get the right answers. My aunt did not, I really did not deserve this at all. She spoke at the hearing along with Begay's son, Gerald Begay. Warren brought attention to her aunt and other cases of missing and murdered indigenous people last summer as she walked from the Navajo Nation to Washington, D.C. Begay is still missing and prosecutors hope to uncover the truth about her disappearance. They say Tolth assaulted the then 62-year-old woman in the community of Sweetwater, Arizona, near Four Corners, and then took her pickup truck, which he allegedly traded for methamphetamine and $200 in Albuquerque. A U.S. Magistrate ordered Tolth to remain in custody pending trial. He was already in custody on a separate charge and has an extensive criminal history. A federal trial is scheduled to begin next month in Phoenix, and if convicted, Tolth faces decades in prison. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heiches in Flagstaff. Researchers at John Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health are surveying water quality and access on tribal lands. KUNC's Emma Van Denindy joined them on a survey day to see how it works. Taishiana Sosi and Kimberly Ballone head out on winding dirt roads, following a random list of homes. To find one driveway, Sosi and Ballone have to count the roads they pass. So this would be seven, uh-huh. eight, right here. While other surveys did not count hogans and trailers, This one uses satellite imagery to map all homes in the Fort Defiant section of the reservation. But without good addresses or Wi-Fi on the Navajo Nation, it can be difficult to find. It is, that Hogan was there. Okay, yeah. (laughs) At each home, residents are asked if they want to be interviewed anonymously. The survey has questions about where they get their water, the water's quality, and potential solutions. They plan to survey more than 1,000 homes, and 100 will be selected for water testing like the blacklight bag testing that Sosi and Ballone did. But the interviews can be a roller coaster of emotions. Ballone recalled one with an old man who was struggling to haul water. And he was just like, um, I'm not going to have anybody to do this, so that might be the end of us if I can't haul water anymore. It's just like, oh my gosh. Plus, many barriers stand in the way for tribal communities. Heather Himmelberger is with the Southwest Environmental Finance Center. She studied tribal water systems in Rio Grande Pueblos, and found that old and faulty pipes and other infrastructure were their main concern. So you have these very expensive infrastructure projects with very few people who can pay for them. So you can imagine that that becomes problematic over time. Her 2022 study also found that many water systems were not aware that dozens of grants existed for their projects. Some did not even receive the full amount of requested funding. 
what part gets done, what part doesn't get done, and then how does that affect that community for a longer time frame? Despite this, Ballone believes the Johns Hopkins survey is what the community needs. Many of them are really, really grateful. They're like, thank you. Like, nobody has asked me these questions. Thank you for being the one to actually start something. The team plans to complete the Fort Defiance survey by November. I'm Emma Vandenindy. This story is supported by the Water Desk at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. KVMR News previously reported that the Ubidox Urgent Care Facility in the Grass Valley Fowler Center was acquired by a large healthcare system. At the time, Dr. Roger Hicks, a former co-owner and creator of the full-service walk-in urgent care facility, stated the clinic would reopen in early April after remodeling and lease negotiations were finalized. However, according to Dr. Hicks, Ubidox is permanently closed as of today, after serving as Western Nevada County's urgent care clinic for 23 years. This weekend, many of the clinic's staff removed equipment and furniture from the building. Dr. Hicks says from his understanding, negotiations between the owners of the Fowler Center and Dignity Health, the prospective buyer, broke down. A letter signed by over 250 Nevada County residents, including medical professionals, elected officials, and prominent community members, was released, urging the negotiating parties to come to an agreement. In the letter, the group voices concern over the increased strain the clinic's closure would put on Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital's emergency department. They write, quote, The clinic's closure would be a crisis. KVMR News will continue to follow the story as developments unfold. Last week, the Nevada Irrigation District announced findings from its April snow survey that sees normal numbers nearly doubled. In last Friday's release, the agency, which is the primary water supplier to much of Nevada County and portions of Placer and Yuba counties, says NID hydrographers found the average water content in the snowpack was 66 inches, which, in terms for non-hydrographers, is 198% of the 33.3-inch average for this time of year. NID's Water Resources Superintendent, Thor Larson, says, quote, The amount of water content was the third largest recorded for an April survey. Only years 1983 and 1952 produced higher numbers. District reservoir storage is also well above average. NID's nine reservoirs are currently at 88% of capacity, which is 108% of average for this time. 
According to the Sacramento Bee, after months of continuous wet weather, California's drought is leaps and bounds from where it was this time two years ago. California entered what would be its driest three-year stretch in 2020. Governor Gavin Newsom's decision in March to lift drought measures signaled a near end to the three-year plight. Since January, the state has been free of, quote, extreme or, quote, exceptional drought. Both classifications are used throughout the state to indicate drought levels. But how does the state even define drought? In language from the U.S. Drought Monitor, drought is a moisture deficit, the amount of water the state has compared to the amount of water it can hold, causing social, environmental, or economical effects. And according to a March 30th update from the Drought Monitor, roughly 3.2 million people remain in drought areas. Meaning, whether or not the drought is over is dependent on where you live and the status of your agency's supply. Pacific Gas and Electric customers can file claims for reimbursement of damage and other expenses directly related to the recent winter storm power outage. This means everything from food spoilage due to fridge outages to damage caused by a restoration power surge can be claimed. You must present receipts or some proof of loss, and you have up to a year to file a claim. You can find additional information and begin the claim process on PG&E's website on their Customer Service Help Claims page. Let's take a look at your local forecast from the National Weather Service. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight increasing clouds with a low around 47 degrees. Tuesday, mostly sunny with a high near 62. Tuesday night is mostly clear with a low around 39 degrees. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 36 degrees, winds as high as 25 miles per hour. Tuesday mostly sunny with a high near 53 and gusts up to 25 miles per hour. Tuesday night will be partly cloudy with a low around 30 miles per hour. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight increasing clouds with a low around 54 and gusts as high as 18 miles per hour. Tuesday partly sunny with a high near 73. Tuesday night will be mostly clear with a low around 45 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. When we think of wildfire damage, the charred remains of homes might spring to mind first. Or maybe it's forest animals fleeing and the apocalyptic-looking devastation the fires tend to leave behind. But for many, it probably isn't, how will this impact my local watershed? However, maybe it should be. Up ahead, KVMR News intern Julia Jem discovers efforts to combat wildfire contamination in water sources that find their way through your home's taps. On April 7th, the Tahoe National Forest announced the public release of the final environmental impact statement and draft record of decision for the North Yuba Landscape Resilience Project, which is a project developed in collaboration with the North Yuba Forest Partnership. I spoke with Lauren Falkenberry, Public Affairs Officer of the Tahoe National Forest Service Department, about the project and its implications, starting with the following question. What exactly is the North Yuba Landscape Resilience Project? And what part does watershed resilience play in its implementation? The North Yuba Landscape Resilience Project is a wildfire risk reduction project. Essentially, it's a 275,000-acre project um, on a landscape scale, which is the North Yuba landscape. So essentially, it is protecting 
the watershed of the North Huber River. So it will be forest thinning and um, fuels reduction primarily. A lot of people don't realize where your water might come from when you turn on your tap. Uh, so essentially the North Huber River watershed serves not only the rural communities of Downeyville, Sierra City, Camptonville, but it also serves, you know, the densely populated Sacramento region. And so if you have a catastrophic wildfire that impacts a watershed that can reduce water quality because of sediment and runoff from a wildfire, it would also impact um, water agency infrastructure, which would be New Bullard's Bar Dam, which is flood protection for the Sacramento Valley, as well as critical water supply. So when we say watershed resilience, it's a few things, not only, you know, protecting the recreation areas and the ecosystem that relies on the water, but also um, individuals that rely on the watershed as well as, you know, agricultural business in the Sacramento Valley. The project was selected by the Forest Service as one of the 10 initial landscapes for bipartisan infrastructure law investments. I asked Lauren to tell me a little more about that. Yes. So as part of the wildfire risk reduction effort that the Forest Service um, implemented last year, a 10-year plan, the North Cuba landscape on the Tahoe National Forest was selected as one of the initial landscape investments. And the, the initial funding came from the bipartisan infrastructure law. And we just announced some additional funding, which is partially um, BIL, and it's also IRA, which stands for Inflation Reduction Act funding. I also asked about the North Yuba Forest Partnership, which assisted in the development of this project and includes eight partners. What does the Forest Partnership do, especially locally? Sure. So the North Yuba Forest Partnership is a group of eight partners. Um, and all partners came together in about 2017, maybe 2018, to complete um, forest health projects on the landscape. And so these partners include locally that you might know, South Uber River Citizens League, as well as Uber Water Agency as a partner, Ajo National Forest, obviously, us, Nature Conservancy, um, Nisenan Tribe. Amptonville Community Partnership, National Forest Foundation, but essentially all partners have a role and a stake in the health of the watershed, and we have all come together to implement work, whether that is through funding and other partnerships. Tahoe National Forest Supervisor Eli Ilano was quoted as saying the following, The North Yuba Landscape Resilience Project is a unique and exciting project in the country, bringing together a great group of partners with the best science to chart a new course for a better forest future. We have collaborated with partners on the project from concept to implementation. These relationships are already beginning to move us toward protecting communities and water and power infrastructure using ecologically based forest management. The national and local funding, coupled with innovative conservation financing, are enabling faster completion of work, with on-the-ground implementation beginning immediately when project decisions are signed. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jem. That's our newscast for Monday, April 10th. 
Listen to anything you may have missed at our website, kvmr.org, and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners. Carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support. Serving Northern California counties from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com And Volsbros Automotive. Serving the community since 1982. Located at 962 Golden Gate Terrace in Grass Valley. Same workmanship, customer service, and community involvement. Online at Volsbros.com Coming up at 6.30, it's the Women's International News Gathering Service, WINGS. In southwestern Guatemala, many indigenous Mayans come from a community in which weaving on backstrap looms is a venerable tradition. But decades of genocidal war, racial discrimination, and economic dislocation have broken the tradition for many. However, a weaving school is giving women the chance to learn the technique and recover their history and culture. In this episode of Wings, we hear from a student and an instructor at the Weaving School. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.